Welcome to the Josh Scanlon Podcast. This episode first appeared as a video on my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash heritage wealth planning. I hope you find it informative. Thanks. The U.S. dollar supremacy could quickly fade. This is uh, an interesting article I came across the other day from uh, Dayline, June 4th, 2019, from the American Enterprise, uh, American Institute of Economic Research, AIER. Uh, Colin Lloyd, who I'm not familiar with, had written this. And uh, it's kind of wonky, but uh, we're going to go into it because uh, it's funny. All right, so let's, there's, a, there's a couple good points in here. I absolutely I don't want to dismiss it. There's, a, there's an issue where I take complete and utter issue with uh, the guy's findings, but uh, a couple of incredibly important points you got to understand. So let's go back. U.S. dollar supremacy could quickly fade. So hang in there with me because this is somewhat, uh, like I said, a wonky economic-ish paper. Uh, that, uh, But I think you'll find a lot out of this for sure. It's not, it's not like a 90-page treatise or anything. Being and remaining a reserve currency is closely tied to four broad factors. Uh, by the way, I just will scroll down um, you see some charts, and I have a comment in here, which uh, if we, which I do like. They allow for comments. Let's see, I just published a comment. Oh, I posted. Let's see if they published it. I think they did. Let's see here. Yeah, there's my comment. Okay. Uh, so let's just read who Colin is. Uh, he's a macroeconomic commentator, writer, and presenter based in London, England. He has worked for asset managers, commodities, blah, 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 since the 80s and writes in the long run. Uh, he's a contributor to several free market publications, including the uh, – okay, I – so essentially, he's coming at it from the free market, uh, I would assume, a libertarian approach from an uh, economic pur uh, purview, but uh, we shall see. All right. Being and remaining a reserve currency is closely tied to four broad factors. The amount of non-domestic debt denominated in your country, in your currency, the value, uh, the value and volume of cross-border contractual obligations which designate your currency as a medium of exchange, the amount of currency in reserves, uh, an issue, amount of currency reserves an issue, and perhaps an arcane proposition in a fiat currency world, the international desirability of your your currency as a store of value. I think this is critical right here. The international desirability of your currency as a store of value. The U.S. dollar currently commands this privilege. It was by no means the first reserve currency. And we see here the Roman denarii. Uh, the Venetian Ducato, Florentine, Florin gained credence. So we got Portugal, Spain, Netherlands, France, Britain, and then finally U.S. of A. It's interesting to see how this all, how they all fell off until uh, U.S. And this, this is very be forewarned in uh, in the global policing of the world that the U.S. has been doing for uh, for I mean under all kinds of different presidents, Democrat, Republican. Seems like Trump is the first one to said no more of that. And I hope he's I hope he stays to this because uh, we can't we just we can't we got we got to stay. Uh, we just got we can't no more wars, man. All right. So anyways, you can see the Britain and then France or U.S. France before that. The U.S. dollar's predecessor, the British sterling, achieved his time in office as a result of the decline of the French dominance after the Napoleonic Wars. There's going to be a uh, there is a continual uh, issue here uh, why these currencies rise and fall. British trade flourished and it's with its merchants' needs, fin uh, needs finance. Okay, I missed something there. The discount houses of Lombard Street, insurance brokers, 
the Lloyd's Coffee House, and even the stock jobbers of Change Alley swiftly responded, creating the necessary financial instruments for uh, sterling to emerge as a preeminent currency of international trade and finance. Uh, you will note that trade followed finance, followed by finance for the, how that relationship began with trade as the master and finance as a servant. I, I Look, I cannot stress this. Let me just put myself on here. I cannot stress this enough. Trade is the master. Finance is the servant. We have lost that in the U.S. I mean, I don't even know. I guess since Carter deregulated Wall Street, I, I, that's the only thing I can. I don't. I, look, man, Carter, more power to him. He actually, him and Ted Kennedy were uh, were capitalists, or at least deregulators uh, for sure. Trade is the master, finance the servant, and what we've done now is finance is the master. We've got to get away from this. Finance is not the master. Finance does not create wealth. But Josh, you get these venture capitalists and angel investors. They're still the finance. They, they are the, the issuing arm of the people who engage in trade, the small businesses, the business of the guys with the idea. I get that. But as it is now, the guys with the money dominate. The guys with the ideas are their servant. It's got to be the other way around. This is the appeal of people like Bernie Sanders and Trump is that they're saying the finance should not be the master. I'm telling you right now, most people recognize that. They say, screw this Wall Street domination of the freaking Main Street. It's got to be Main Street dominates Wall Street. And there's, there's it's, look, it's not even political so much. It's just, it's, it's common sense. Finance creates nothing. There's got to be a guy or a lady with an idea that takes the finance and puts it to use. But the idea is what creates the wealth. The finance doesn't create the wealth. It's the idea. Ah! It's the bringing to markets that idea. I get it. It takes money in order to do that. But the, you can't put the horse before the, cor the car, car. I mean, the car before the horse. You can't say, I'm going to finance something and we're going to take it to the market. That doesn't work. You got to finance something of an idea the idea i.e the trade comes first and we've lost our way with that and with this i uh, just again clinton bush uh bush obama uh, i mean i go back to reagan i mean i don't know where it started but we've got to get away from that where we say finance is the slave freaking trade is the master the passing of the baton from the uk to the u.s resulted from two disaster and expensive wars huh, interesting so what led the France to decline? The Napoleonic Wars led, led for the uh, UK sterling, pound sterling to come to the US wars again. Well, but Josh, US was engaged in those wars. Yeah, but they weren't on our soil, thankfully. So we didn't have to engage in it here. And we did it to save the world. No other way around that. Um, yeah. As part of the Bretton Woods Agreement under the gold exchange standard, the US dollar became the instrument of conversion whilst it was paying to the gold at $35 an ounce. By the 60s, however, cracks are beginning to show. So remember, it was illegal for you to own gold back then, right? It was illegal. You could not own gold and sell it. Uh, you couldn't own it. It was illegal. The economic conflicts between short-term domestic and long-term international objectives for the manager of the reserve currency were first defined by Robert Triffin. I've never heard of this guy, so this is, I found this of interest. Uh, in 1971, Triffin's dilemma became reality with the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement Oil, notionally blamed for the collapse, was by this stage no longer priced in sterling but in U.S. dollars. Gold was gone, but the vast trade in oil allowed the U.S. dollar to retain its position uh, through a sheer volume of transactions. 
That's what they call it, the petrodollar. Okay. A mixture of inertia, uh, what economists call a network externality, i.e., they we can't give a reason for why this happens. It just happens. We can't. Uh, so economists, they don't know, like, why did that happen? We call it externality, basically pollution. Uh, CO2, if you're worried about CO2, is the externality of you know burning fossil fuels. So we need it, but there's a negative thing that could happen, and this is the same, inertia, externality. What was the negative thing that happened from all the positive things? I don't think CO2 is a negative thing, but whatever. Military might and relative value when compared with more inflation-bent regimes render the U.S. dollar still supreme. In a 2016 essay, uh, former Reserve uh, Ben Bernanke highlighted the following factors which have allowed the dollar to maintain its position. Stability of value. Since the mid-1980s, the Fed has done a good job of keeping inflation low and stable. Agree with that. Liquidity. U.S. financial markets, especially the U.S. Treasury market, are the deepest and most liquid in the world. Agree with that. Safety. Despite congressional shenanigans surrounding the debt limit, there is a large supply of dollar assets considered to be very safe, including Treasury securities. And finally, lender of last resort. Uh, the flee, uh, the flight to safety, flight to quality is what this is. The Fed Reserve, uh, as a backstop provider of dollars during the financial crisis by instituting currency swaps of 14 central banks, including four in emerging markets. While many have uh, many years of research has been undertaken to attempt to calculate the value of being the reserve currency, uh, Barry Eichengreen description is most succinct. It costs only a few cents for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to produce a $100 bill, but other countries had to pony up $100 of actual goods to obtain one. Yeah. So we, uh, we have benefited greatly from being the reserve currency for sure. The current world order. Ah, then 17th, uh, the 17th ECB, the International Role of the Euro, report from 2018, explores the position of the world's reserve, second reserve currency, the euro. The chart below looks at the big four, the U.S. dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, and the Chinese yuan. They call it the one they call the Ren Nimbi, Minbi. So I'm not sure why, I don't know where that Nimbi comes in. But anyway, so here's the international debt. The U.S. dollar is about three to, uh, two to one. International trade is about uh, two and a half to one. Uh, foreign, I mean, you can see all this uh, foreign exchange, uh, but this was interesting to me. Foreign exchange reserves. We are three to one of the euro. Uh, look at that. Global payment currency. We're basically tracking a little bit with the euro. Foreign exchange turnover. I mean, you can see all that. And look, the Chinese yuan is nowhere to be seen, essentially. Um, no one's loaning money in international debt or international loans. Very few hold China as a reserve. And Japan is basically yesterday's news, as much I hate to say it, but no one's, I mean, Japan's. Uh, in terms of their currency, look, I'm not saying as the economy is still a big economy, but as in terms of their currency, uh, in the global scheme of things, Japan is is not, uh, I mean, it's a player, but not much of one anymore. All right, so that's interesting. At first glance, the dollar appears to be comfortably in the vanguard, a more nuanced approach to the look at the evolution of this market. Um, yeah, they got a couple typos in here. Uh, the rise of the euro is far more evident in its share of cross-border payments. You know, I got my books. I got some typos in there, but it's just me here. Um, and so I'm surprised that they didn't catch a couple of these things because I presume there's a big group of editors. Anyway, so here's a, so here's 2015, uh, the ECB, the rise of euro in terms of uh, cross-border payments. So we go back here. Cross, I guess that'd be global payment currency, I guess, right there. 38 to 40% in U U.S. and 35 in the euro. Uh... 
And then, yeah, so there we go. So, yeah, right on. So, basically, in 2017, the euro has basically caught up with us in terms of global uh, cross-payment, uh, cross-border payments. I'm not sure if that's a huge issue. But anyway, right there, 2015, we're about 48%, and the euro is about 30 2017, we're about 40, and they're about 38. Nah, I don't find that. I mean, that that's just two years. Uh, a trend is that? I don't think so. But, you know, whatever. We'll just keep watching that. I'm not all that concerned. By contrast, the value of the financial debt is still heavily biased towards the U.S. currency. Although the recent rise in the dollar issuance may be related to higher interest rates available in the U.S. markets when compared to the Eurozone, Switzerland, or Japan. I, see, that's a, I mean, again, at the end, of, and we go back to store value right here, exchange reserves. Um, who's going to buy a, a Japan with negative interest rates? Uh, a euro, and I don't even know what the interest rates are there, but I know German bonds got negative interest rates in, uh, in Switzerland, I don't know, but same thing, roughly 0%, when you can get a 10-year treasury to a little bit over 2 And with the size and the strength of the 10-year treasury, the, the foreign currency is going to be in demand. That's all there is to it. The size and the demand of the U.S. domestic capital market distorts the total uh, in the chart above, but the dollar also retains a substantial lead as a currency of choice of non-domestic debt issuance. Uh, so again, we are way up here. Everybody else is way down there. So a similar pattern is evident in cross-border loans. All this may be related to the relatively robust condition of U.S. banks in comparison with the European counterparts. I just read the other day that Deutsche Bank, aren't they going uh, going belly up? I don't know if they're going bankrupt. I don't think they're closing their doors, but I think they're filing for bankruptcy or something like that. But, uh, I mean, you know, that's Deutsche Bank, man. All right? that was That's a big player. Uh, I forgot. There seemed like another European bank. I forgot what it was. Not too long ago, the same thing. Nah, I'm drawing a blank. All right. What is most evident from all these charts is the impression of a two-horse race between the U.S. dollar and the euro. No other currency is a serious contender. How rapidly could the U.S. dollar uh, hegemony? I never knew how to pronounce that word. Hegemony? Hegemony? <laughs> Evaporate. All the world leaders, uh, how rapidly could the U.S. dollar dominance evaporate? Let's just say that. Hegemony. Hegemony, I think. You, 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 you ever see that uh, word B-E-H-E? M-O-T-H, Behemoth. Behemoth is how it's called. I used to call it Behemoth. <laughs> it's actually Behemoth. Oh, man. Savannah. I used to call it Savannah. It's not Savannah. It's Savannah. <laughs> All the world leaders and central bankers, uh, mostly Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, anticipate the U.S. dollar's fall from grace, barring a major war. Any challenge to the greenbacks reserve status is likely to be gradual at best. Just get out of the flipping wars. That is the easiest way to lose dom. If just look at history, what caused the bankruptcy of the dominating societies throughout history? Always wars. They extended their debt for freaking uh, for for gain for uh, to take over uh, just for dominance. You know, what's um, this, God, another word I'm looking for? They wanted to grow and grow and grow. They borrowed and borrowed and borrowed. And then when it came time where they could not grow anymore, they had to run back and they couldn't pay the debt. 
and quickly the lenders would not give them money and then next thing you know they're overrode overrode uh it just happens all the time stop stop the expansion and look everyone says you're just in afghanistan for their natural resources whatever i you know it's stupid but i get it you know people want a reason to make the boogeyman just stop with all this trumpster stop and he's i think he's doing a good job uh, regarding this look they say all this stuff about iran Trump's not trying to get to war. He's a capitalist. He knows what the issue is with war. It hurts wealth. It doesn't engage and create wealth. Wars destroy wealth. Uh, never mind people, for heaven's sake. All right, so barring a war, any challenge to the greenbacks reserve status is likely to be gradual at best. Nonetheless, uh, nonetheless a number of external factors might combine to accelerate its eventual demise. The resurgence of a demand in gold. Uh, or some commodity-based alternative. According to the World Gold Council, gold reserves rose more than 145 tons in the first quarter, a 68% increase from a year earlier. Russia was the largest purchaser. Uh, gold reserves of the central banks are at the highest level since the collapse of the gold exchange uh, standard. Uh, the, I mean, that in of itself, that, okay. I mean, it's at the highest by 1%. I just, that doesn't mean anything. That's great. Russia bought some gold, more power to them. I mean, <laughs> over the last quarter, that's just right there. Okay. I get it. If we have more and more of that for a continuing amount of time, it might be some concern with, but that doesn't mean anything. The use of an international unit of accounts, such as a special drawing right, John Maynard Keynes dubbed gold the barbarous relic and proposed a dank ore to replace it. I mean, this uh, I always talk, but that always cracked me up. Uh, who's going to be the issuer of the currency or the decider of that? The euro? I mean, the EU, the ECB, European Central Bank? I mean, come on, man. Who's? I mean, everyone had to capitulate. Why would the U.S. capitulate? I mean, it, it could be. Don't get me wrong. I know there's a lot of people who want the U.N. to dominate the world politics, uh, but it's, that's going to be tough because most Americans don't want that. And they certainly want, don't want the UN dictating uh, or the ECB how we run our own uh, financial affairs. And even to that extent, no one in the U.S. is going to voluntarily give up the power. Uh, and I mean, some, I guess some could, but it's hard to imagine. Hard, I mean, but then you look, you look at the EU. I mean, look at all those countries. They voluntarily gave up the power. And uh, now they're scrambling to get it back, and they're having a hard time, as witnessed by Brexit and what's going on in Italy. Uh, it's just, I, you know, I guess you could voluntarily give it up if you truly are a true believer in the U.N., but uh, it's hard to imagine the U.S. as a dominant player unless there's some big war with the U.N. Uh, just seems to be where we're getting hammered. It's hard to imagine. Uh, back in 2009, Zhao Xiaoshan, uh, the governor of the People's Bank of China, gave a speech in which he stated that Keynes' Bancor approach had been farsighted. He, uh, again, he proposed some adoption of something. Okay. Later that year, the G8 summit, Russian President Medvedev bestowed a new international coin on each delegate with the words unity in diversity. Huh, where have we heard that before? Unity uh, in diversity. That's where the university system comes. The name university is unity in diversity. The era of digital currencies. Bitcoin was not the first, but it's still the most important crypto challenge to the established order. Backed by distributed ledger technology uh, with a finite circulation and fulfills many of the theoretical requirements of its currency. Uh, central banks have watched closely and are developing their own digital currency, and that's why uh, the need for the greenback is undermined by the That See, that well, that is the issue I do have. That is the issue I have. A lot of the, Larry Summers, uh, who used to be Obama's finance secretary, the president of uh, 
Harvard used to be. Uh, he he want he said let's get rid of cash. I see that's the concern I have. Get rid of cash. That's what the big bankers, big governments want. They want to eliminate cash. Why? Because they want control. Uh, they think by you trading in hundred dollar bills, and they're going to use it under the excuse of that you're uh, money laundering. You know, selling drugs. That's bad. That's bad for freedom, man. Uh, just because you got cash does not mean you're money laundering. It means you're trying to escape their version of dominance. And I do find that to be a big risk. Absolutely. The getting rid of cash is the first point of getting rid of the dollar as a currency without question, without question. Uh, cash is, is the actual dollar bill. And I don't have my wall here, but the dollar bill, they want to erase that. They want the control. And if they erase it, then it's completely up to them. Uh, in terms of what they what the value of the dollar is and that could be scary that could be scary to get rid of the dollar as a global reserve for sure because then they decide and then you have no choice and then if you are engaging in trade using dollars just like the gold back in the you know from 1934 uh, uh, I guess 35 when FDR made it illegal 32 uh, until 1972, uh, it was illegal to engage in gold transactions. It could be easily illegal to engage in dollar transactions because they want to know what the hell you're doing. Oh, that's that's a conspiracy. No, it's not. Larry Summers was saying that. A lot of economists are saying that. Uh, who was else? A guy, Krugman, maybe? That's the scary thing, getting rid of the cash transactions. Uh, small contracts, smart contracts, and growing bilateral. See, this is the one that's interesting. Growing bilateral trade in other currencies. The Chinese yuan has been closely pegged to the U.S. dollar for several years. This allowed Chinese goods to be sold at relatively stable prices. The rise of the euro has tilted the balance away from the dollar. Well, let's take a look. So I'm going to pause. Let's see what the euro has done to the dollar. Hold on just a second. This is the five-year chart of the rise of the euro. Um, and here we are five years ago. The euro had cost about one point, you know, roughly one, $1.4 to get one euro. And now we're back to 1.2. So, I, I mean, I guess we look at it historically here. Let's see. That's not a huge rise. That had a the rise in 2008. The, you know, we had 2000, but it's it's gone down steadily. And then 2001, the euro was trading below. See, this is the issue I always find with these naysayers about the rise of the euro, as if the euro is dominating the U.S. I mean, what we see is we see a gradual reduction from 1.58 uh, to 1.12. So, there's, I mean, since 2008. Uh, till today, 11 years, the euro has dropped, you know, let's see, take my trusty calculator, 1.58 minus uh, to 1.12.46 divided by 1.58, it's dropped 30%. So how can you say the rise of the euro? We literally have a, a destruction of 30%, 29.1 to be exact. <coughs> So no, we don't see that. I mean, since the, I guess, since the euro was created was as something, I guess, 2000, uh, 1998, uh, let's say it was issued at a dollar, uh, one euro for one dollar, right, it's gone 12% up. So, I mean, that's 21 years. That's not, I mean, so if we, if we, if we let, let's, let's, I mean, we got 21 years. We got $1 is the present value. 1.12 is the future value. 21 years. Uh, we got, uh, uh, Zero payments. I gotta get one more. Oops, one point one two future value. Uh, I mean, it's risen by one half of one percent a year. That that's anyway. I always take issue when they say the rise of anything because we just don't. There's nothing there. All right, but anyway, go, uh, the rise of the euro has tilted the balance away from the U.S. dollar. I, yeah, okay. 
China, Russia, India, and Brazil have made it clear they would prefer to transact mutual trade investment in their own currencies. Yeah, I completely get that because they can control their their deflationary or inflationary, I should say, uh, their devaluation of the currency to sell the import, to, to, to make it cheaper to export. We know this. I mean, of course they want to transact in their own currency because they control the value of the, their own currency, which means if they want to devalue it in order to what they think a quick fix to make their exports cheaper, they can do that. They can't do that here when the dollar is the predominance. So and as long as we don't go to war, the dollar will maintain it. Because no one's going to want to trade in Chinese yuan if we think they're going to devalue. I mean, no one's going to do that. Russia, why is Russian buying gold? Probably because they're going to devalue. I, look, I don't follow that much, but I can easily see the mile away. They feel gold is a store of value. They're devaluing their own currency because no one wants it. Uh, so they're saying at the end of the day, well, at least we'll have this gold instead because our value of our currency is going down. It just inherently makes sense. If I'm Russia and I say, look, I can get an ounce of gold for a, a Russia ruble right now. I got one Russian ruble I can get an ounce of gold. I'm going to buy an ounce of gold for a Russian ruble, especially if I know I'm going to devalue that Russian ruble so in the future, it's going to cost a dollar and 1.5 rubles to buy that ounce of gold. It's a hedge. It's what they're doing. They say, we're going to devalue it. So we're going to buy our gold now at one Russian ruble for one ounce. We're going to devalue the currency in order to make exports more cheap so people can import our goods. Uh, and what happens is the Russian ruble is devalued. So now it costs 1.5 rubles. Uh, to buy that ounce of gold. But they what they did is they timed it perfectly. They said, ah, but we got the gold that won. Now, what's going to happen is <laughs> when they try to sell the currency, if they want the Russian ruble, it's still, I mean, you see, you see them, how this works? So they're going to say, well, we're not going to buy our own Russian ruble because it's worth less. We've lost 50%, so we'll buy it in U.S. dollars. I just, I don't understand why this guy doesn't get that. It inherently makes sense to me. Uh, let's see. Ch uh, China has introduced a yuan-denominated uh, oil futures contract, which is captures. Okay, it's just okay, whatever. If you're trusting the commies, more power to you. Uh, since 2014, international access to stocks via the stock connected between Hong Kong and Shanghai has opened the Chinese market to additional foreign capital. Uh, the Shenzhen stock market stock exchange fell in 2016. Okay, I just look, man. You see what's going on in Hong Kong right now? Um, yeah. <laughs> As long as the Brits still had some kind of control over it, uh, Hong Kong was a capitalist freaking panacea. It's only a matter of time. They're not going to send the tanks to Hong Kong for Tiananmen Square Lake. But look, man, Hong Kong is doomed. Was it 1998 when the Brits gave it back to China or gave it to China? It gets back to China. And that, that we knew what was going to happen. It's only a matter of time. It's happening, right? You know, China's not stupid. They know what they're doing. They're doing a piecemeal as opposed to one fell swoop. And they're gonna, they'll try to do the same to Taiwan. So at the end of the day, you know, go ahead uh, and trust uh, your uh, your instincts on what China is doing. I mean, they want, uh, you know, they want expansion. Taiwan, Hong Kong, who knows what else? I mean, hell, China and Japan aren't the best of friends, you know. I mean, China's all over Africa right now, all over with coal-fired plants, the whole thing, mining companies. I mean, uh, man, what's that word I'm looking for? They're trying to expand. Hold on a second. So his empire was the word I was looking for, I guess, um, that was where they're trying to global expansion. You're trying to build your empire. And that didn't do quite the what I thought. It's just we'll just say global domination, global expansion. As long <coughs> as you're not trying to 
increase and expand via wars, uh, you're probably pretty good chance that you'll remain solid in the world reserve. So don't do that. All right. How rapidly could the dollar uh, decline? There's still a long way to go. Prior to its launch in 1999, the currencies which now comprise of the euro accounted for 18% of global reserves. Uh, today, they're just over 20%. So, I mean, just again, I mean, it's not as if, you know, the German was a Deutschmark back then and whatever the France, the Franc, Frank, whatever. I mean, these things still have their own currency uh, reserves. And now they don't because they all fell under the, the euro. <laughs> all right. So they've gone from 18 to 20%. It's just, I don't find that to be a significant uh, threat to the U.S. domination for sure. Uh, the chart shows the waxing and waning of the U.S. reserves between 1965 and 2018. Uh, the recent low point was 46% in 1991. This was a response to the original collapse uh, of the Bretton Woods Agreement. Interesting, the rebound began with the outbreak of the Gulf War. All right, well, that's the short-term solution because people say, oh, no, the Gulf War, let's go back to the U.S. And then how quickly it ended. The war isn't what made it happen, it was how quickly it ended. I'm telling you right now, I remember back then, hell, I was in the army back then. And I remember thinking, if this goes, this is, remember they're talking about the Iraqi guard, their uh, extraordinary, you know, fighting force. I mean, it's just all fake stuff. And then, uh, and it was like, it's going to drag us in a war, the price of oil is going to go through the roof, the dollar is going to be, just, no one's going to want the dollar because the oil is going so much, blah, blah, blah. It didn't happen. And because it didn't happen also in the U.S., that was what propelled us to world domination, that we easily just went through Iraq and, and smoked them. Obviously, we had a, uh, a little bit of a rebellion uh, in 2007 and 8, 6, 7, 8, and Bush quelled it. And Obama got back in there and he essentially gave up the gains, which still to this day ticks me off. But be it as it may, uh, hopefully that's a lesson learned. No more empire, if that makes sense. Um, and look, I'm not... I, we can argue all day long about the uh, genesis of the Iraq war. It bores me at this stage. There are many, many men uh, and women who suffered and died uh, for those wars. To the say is a war of uh, whatever, lie. I just find it to be offensive uh, to the memories of those people, for sure. Regardless of how you feel about the Iraq war, U.S. being U.S. and I will say human beings suffered for it, without question. Without question. And um, it's just sad. Let's stop that. All right. The U.S. dollar managed to remain uh, the reserve currency even with only 46% of global reserves. This suggests that as long as the U.S. remains actively in, inter and this is what I take issue with this guy, as long as the U.S. remains actively engaged in international trade, its dominant position is assured. I, I agree with that 100%. I take issue with his last part of this. The greatest risk to the U.S. dollar, right here is where I take issue, is in fact may come from within the imposition of tariffs and sanctions create an opportunity for other countries to engage in bilateral trade. Isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what Trump's trying to do. He's trying to engage in bilateral trade with many of these countries. Uh, he's, he's saying, look, UK, Brexit, we're here. We'll engage in bilateral trade. All kinds of countries said, I don't want to be part of this. Uh, I don't know what the opposite, not unilateral, bilateral, multilateral, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to trade with you one-on-one. -on -one. And I, I tell you, so they, this guy is saying the imposition of tariffs create an opportunity for other countries to engage in bilateral trade. Well, it still creates the opportunity for us, too. It's not like we're the only, we're not going to be part of that decision. Now, here's what it cracks me up. 
The decision to withdraw from the three free trade initiatives such as TPP and TTIP weakens not only the prospects for U.S. trade, but the preeminent dollar position of the dollar. I'm surprised he didn't say the decision to withdraw from the free trade initiatives as NAFTA. I was wondering why. I was curious. I had to chuckle why he did not say it. I guarantee if he would have written this two years ago, he would have said that. And we know NAFTA, even though it said free trade in the acronym in the North American Free Trade Agreement, it wasn't free trade. It was absolutely not free trade. And none of these other things are free trade. They're not. They're top-down, bureaucratic, freaking nightmares. They're not free trade. And I just find it funny, the, the decision to withdraw from the free trade initiatives uh, dimmons, weakens the prospects for the preeminent position of the U.S. dollar. Actually, I think it's 100% the other direction, 100%. Um, and, and I just find it funny he didn't add if NAFTA. Why would he not have said NAFTA? Why? Because we are now engaging in bilateral agreements with Mexico, bilateral agreements with, uh, with Canada. <laughs> and guess who's along for the ride? Justin Trudeau and now AMLO in Mexico, the socialists. They know. They want, we are the game in town, man, and we should use it for all its purposes because we are the dominant economy. If you want to play in the U.S., you deal with our rules. That's the way it works. And that's what we're finally telling China, which goes against my other thing here, what this guy says. Uh, in 1994 book, uh, When China Ruled the Seas, Louise Lat or something recounts the journeys of the largest fleet of treasure ships ever witnessed at that time. After the death of the Yongle Emperor in 1424, uh, China turned inward, spurred on by civil unrest due to a series of bad harvests. China's xenophobic decision and the rest of the world had nothing to offer, that the rest of the world had nothing to offer, created an opportunity for Venice. Oh, my God. I just, I mean, the Italian Renaissance and the course of the New World Order can be charted from this point. <laughs> Markets abhor a vacuum. If the U.S. turns its back on the world, the U.S. will find a way to, the world will find a way to fill the void. The exorbitant privilege of, the, of being the reserve currency has undeniable benefits, but as Bastiat would put it, what is seen and what is unseen is conditioned for maintaining it. Engagement in a free trade with the rest of the world. So this guy had to, he could not agree that Trump was right. He just couldn't because they, these economists, they don't. So here's my comment. And so this is what I say. And I quote, the imposition of tariffs and sanctions created an opportunity for other countries to engage in bilateral trade. The decision to withdraw from the free trade initiatives, blah, blah, blah. These are not free trade is what I said. NAFTA, it turns out, wasn't free trade either. Only macroeconomics would see these are free trade. I always chuckle at economists who insist the U.S. is turning its back on the world when we actually finally engage in the trade wars that have been going on against us for decades. We have been the suckers. And now when we finally decide to fight back, we are the ones who start the trade war. Yeah, not quite. We're not removing ourselves xenophobically from the world. We are not turning our back in a mercantilist position like what happened in Venice, what happened in Portugal, certainly not in a China where we're making ours the kingdom that no one else can see. This, I mean, it's just this freaking stupid. It's stupid to even say that. I'm sick of that. Because these guys saying, oh my goodness, the U.S. is turning back on itself like China, turn the back on the world like China. It's not doing that, dude. Look what we're doing with Trudeau. Trudeau knows who's playing the cards here, and it's not him. Look what we're doing in Mexico. They know. Look what we're doing in China. They know. We're trying to get in bilateral agreements with the U.K. to allow them to go through a Brexit. We're, re we're not renego we're renegotiating because we've been the suckers, the fools for these many years, and we're finally saying no. But we're not going China, xenophobic. That's just, I just, why are these economists? I don't get it. It's like they, it's, uh, anyway, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's, it's, uh, look, I love Bastiat too, Frederick Bastiat. I love it. 
This isn't free trade. It's not free trade what's happening. If you understand how NAFTA worked, you would understand it's completely the antithesis of free trade. And it would piss you off as it should. And this is what's been going on in all these agreements all over the world, TPP and all this other crap. It's not free trade. Why do you think China is able to sell us their cheap-ass Nikes to the U.S.? Do you think it's because they have actually care for their workers? Do you think there's an agreement with North Korea potentially to use the slave laborers of North Korea to build these Nikes so you can have a freaking pair of Air Jordans for a freaking 95% profit margin of Nike, who then turns around and donates the money to campaign contributions? This is not conspiratorial. This is not freaking uh, crazy, you know, uh, what's that, uh, tinfoil hat stuff. This is just a reality. And finally, someone has come along to see it. And I mean, hell, like I said, I, this is pro-Trump. I get it. But the, some of these guys on the left see it too. Now, they see it for different ways than I see it. They see it because they want more control over minimum wage and stuff. But at the end of the day, let's stop and let's pretend that this is free trade. Just look at those assembly line pictures in China. I mean, oh, but Josh, they have jobs. I get that. I get that. The North Koreans, though, they're not. I mean, you think they don't have a gun to the head? You think the Chinese, they could turn around and say, yeah, I got jobs, but I, I don't want to do this job. I'm going to take a, a, I'm going to manufacture a shoe and bring it to market without the freaking communists telling them what they can and cannot do. I mean, do you think there's free trade? There's free markets in these places? I mean, come on. Just because it says free trade or you not unilateral, whatever it is, multilateral agreement, and we want to establish free trade, if it goes through the auspices of the bureaucrats in Brussels and even in the United States, they're going to have their freaking stamp of approval on it, which is not eliminate, which will eliminate free trade. I just don't get why economists can't figure this out. It's weird to me. The antithesis of Trump uh, with his just his lack of of tact. It really bothers these guys. It's, it's weird to me. But anyway, either way, uh, as long as we don't engage in wars, we're going to be the number one game in town, without question. Without, but, but Josh, the price of oil could now it's not go through the roof. Now it's going to drop because we are exporting oil now. Okay, well, we used to hear the price of oil could go through the roof, which would kill the dollar. Well, now it's kind of like the other way. The price of oil could drop, and I just you can't win for these guys. You can't win. At the end of the day, what is going to replace the U.S. dollar? That's the issue. And the only way it's going to be replaced is if we go on empire and expansion uh, needlessly. And if we do, don't do that, we're fine for many, many years. I got no qualm with that at all. All right, a little bit of a long one, I get it, but uh, it's important. All right, Smash, uh, if you're on the podcast, much obliged. Don't forget to do a five-star rating. If you would, share the video in a, an episode. We'll see you next time.